0: Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The global financial crisis of 2008 and the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 have opened the door for new economic theories to emerge. As governments inflate debt to address these crises, the chatter around modern monetary theory has grown into a chorus in some circles, particularly as the Americans discuss the Green New Deal. Mark Zelmer is a former deputy superintendent of financial institutions and a senior fellow at the CD Howe, Farah Omran is a former policy analyst at the Institute. We began our conversation about MMT by asking, why are we reviewing modern monetary policy in the first place? We're Canadian.
1: That's a good question. I I think we're reviewing it because... There is a lot that is out there on modern monetary theory that you can you can read and, and you know, you'd know assume that that would get you a good enough picture. But what we realized is there's just so much that is confusing and not giving a, a really accurate description of the theory. It's just a lot of back and forth of it's this, no, it's that, it's this, no, it's that. And what we wanted is to just go back and actually look at the description of the theory from an objective point of view and and give it give it an accurate review and 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 see what it actually says so we can then decide whether we agree with it or not based on our understanding of it
2: i agree with faro it's uh there's you get people on two extremes either those that think it's the devil incarnate because it's a license to print money with uh without any regard to uh government's financial situation And then there are others on the other extreme that think that this is a great new economic theory that will uh, replace modern economics. And uh, reality is really somewhere in between as we uh, set out in our paper.
0: And in that paper, you point out that part of this conversation exists because there's so much talk, particularly south of the border, of the the new Green Deal.
2: Yeah, the Green Deal certainly started it because uh, there are many people in the United States that are keen to find ways to... uh, pay for new infrastructure, uh, new social spending and the like, and, and deal with a lot of inequalities that exist in current society, not just in the US and other countries too. But where it really has come to the fore, I think is with the pandemic, because uh, so many countries have had to suddenly uh, spend massive amounts of money to keep us all safe. That is totally unprecedented in the historical context outside of a wartime experience. And so people are looking ways to find out is this uh, indeed a uh, sustainable proposition? And then basically, well, if we could do this for pandemics, can we do this to address every other social ill that we have out there?
0: You mentioned wartime experience. You know, Farah, is there any sort of historical precedent beyond that? It seems like every time we talk about how are we going to pay for the pandemic, we fall back on, well, we didn't need to tax our way out of this after the Second World War. But I don't think that's an apples to apples comparison
1: we were able to do that in the second world war because we kind of just forced people to buy the bonds at a very low interest rate and um that kind of just inflated it. well the economy grew the rates were, were low and that kind of just inflated itself away but i think that was also to an extent temporary and and the the prescription of mmt is more of a, of a way of being
2: My take on it, if you look back on Second World War financing, certainly a large portion of it was financed through uh, government borrowing uh, bonds, typically through victory bonds and the like, uh, as well as from the banking system, et cetera. But there was a great deal of money creation also during the wartime era, especially in the countries that ultimately lost the war, but uh, even to a certain extent, many European countries and to a lesser extent in North America. So there was inflation after uh, after the war. In fact, that inflation happened in large part because there were price and wage controls during the war, so the inflationary pressures were contained, and they ultimately spilled out right after the war. So, in a, in the end, in effect, some of the uh, uh, wartime expenditure was financed through inflation. Uh, another big factor that's not present today was that. Uh, After having gone through the Great Depression, and then with the war, uh, there was a great uh, great deal of pent up uh, demand for spending on the part of society, both in terms of consumer demand, as well as the need to rebuild infrastructure after the war. And so that generated a fair amount of economic growth that served as a tailwind, if you like, to help finance the uh, wartime debt, because the economy grew at a fairly robust pace. For about uh, oh uh, I do my sums right here about 30 some odd years uh,
0: 25
2: to 30 years after the war uh, we we had a a nice tailwind in the form of uh, of economic demand in large part because Canada and the United States came through the war with their infrastructure largely intact so they were able to pick up a lot of uh, service a lot of demand as other parts of the world were rebuilding so With that uh, rapid economic growth, that helped to build the capacity to uh, service and repay the debt that was incurred during the war. Unfortunately, coming out of the pandemic, we don't have that same uh, tailwind, if you like. And so while we do have the luxury of very low interest rates, uh, we don't have the robust economic growth. And while we might get a growth spurt uh, as people start to spend again after they get vaccinated, as debatable as to how persistent that spurt will be and we would need a pretty persistent one if we hope to uh uh carry the debt uh, without major repercussions
0: well mark you just got the shot has that gotten you into the idea of maybe it's time to start opening the wallet again the joy of being retired
2: is i uh, didn't have the same uncertainties as other people so uh it's been a, a great time for uh, doing some spending uh, that one can do, and I do certainly look forward to the day of being able to travel again.
0: Mm. Uh, Farah, maybe I've just spent too much time on Twitter, but it seems like the critics of modern monetary theory will tell you that it's all about downplaying the inflationary impact of printing money. Is this true?
1: I I disagree with that. I don't think MMT downplays um, the inflationary effect of printing money. I think MMT acknowledges very clearly that either printing money or issuing bonds or any, any form of that spending is inflationary if it leads to aggregate demand going over aggregate supply. So I think MMT, that's a starting point for MMT. It acknowledges that. Uh, and I think uh, the, 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 the fact that it's discussed in Twitter and on social media as such is, is really just an effect of it being so political and, so, and discussed in the public discourse without really going back to the basics of what it is. And that's why we wanted to write that paper to, to, to clarify that while not, necess- not everything about it is correct, the way it's understood and discussed is not correct either.
2: Perry is quite right. It acknowledges the need for inflation control and acknowledges that that is the primary constraint on government spending. But the question really comes down to how much confidence do you have that fiscal policymakers will exercise the appropriate degree of restraint when the point comes that the economy is starting to uh, bump up against uh, production capacity constraints? History is not on their side. Because if you look back over time, there's a big temptation at any point in time for governments to want to to pursue multiple policy objectives and not necessarily put uh, uh, heavy emphasis on inflation control. Greater employment might be more attractive or putting a little bit extra money into various uh, programs of the day may seem more attractive than uh, uh, curbing spending to control inflation.
1: I guess the the fear about talking about such theory is when we say, you know, conflicting priorities like having higher employment or having better living standards or better investments in green technology, it's not that we're saying these priorities are not important, but what we're saying is that if a politician who is facing an election year is also faced with rising inflationary pressures, and the MMT prescription is then for that fiscal policymaker to increase taxes or cut spending, we find it really hard to believe that that's going to happen. Um, and that's just a, a fault of how the political system functions. And, um, but that is a big problem in the theory, in my opinion.
0: Which brings us back to that whole point that the concern here is that a central bank only has two things it's keeping an eye on, inflation and employment, but a government may not put those two priorities at the top of the list because that official wants to get elected again.
2: Well, basically, the central bank uh, takes the fiscal policy as given and the economic conditions as given. And from that determines what's the appropriate monetary policy response to keep inflation under control. Uh, Now, that obviously central uh, monetary policy makers and fiscal policy need to talk to one another but nonetheless there's a very it is a very clear commitment on the part of the central bank to be able to uh, do this and it can do this through monetary policy actions and that in turn gives comfort to uh, investors whether they're Canadian investors or foreign investors that uh, they don't have to worry about their investments being undermined by uh, 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 inflation. So in that sense, that helps to generate future economic wealth because it provides a more uh, certainty for prospective investors that it's uh, indeed safe to invest in Canada and they won't see their returns eroded away by inflation. So really, ultimately, what we're saying is, yeah, if the, if the government is going to be spending money on things that are going to generate future economic wealth, in future economic productive capacity, then uh, MMT is correct. There is a great deal of scope to do that. But if they uh, are more entranced by uh, pursuing things that are that look more like, in economic terms, current consumption or maintaining current living standards, uh, that's a game that's going to run out as the uh, uh, if they're not careful.
0: It, when I think about the term modern monetary Theory. I I think about the modern component to it and and the world in which we operate in now. Canada is small. We have an open economy. But capital is mobile. What does that mean for the monetary sovereignty of the government of Canada? And does that sort of tie a a hand behind their back as far as the levers they can pull in modern monetary policy, considering everybody else has got their own levers they're pulling too. And, you know, a butterfly beats its wings in Tokyo and we get a tsunami elsewhere
1: around the world. I'm going to start answering this question by just kind of a side note, because I think in order to have a productive conversation about MMT, we need to agree that as a starting point, you know, we understand that a monetary sovereign government does not need to borrow. Um, I think a lot of the discussion about the theory gets stuck with the supporters of the theory you know once you mention the word borrow and they invalidate anything that comes after and it, it gets into this back and forth so you know similar to climate change where the conversation whether it's happening or not is no longer useful and we should move the conversation to okay what do we do about it i really think the discussion should start from okay we agree mon- or or at least let's I start with the assumption that a monetary sovereign government like Canada, so one that issues its own currency, borrows mainly in that currency and um, has a floating chain rate, yes, that government does not need to borrow. And then just focused on what comes after and the practical aspects of MMT that follow from that thinking and, and its policy prescription. Having said that, then in a world uh, where Canada is a small economy, a small open economy, like you said, and and the uh, capital is mobile, the fear here is that, like Mark just alluded to, is that investors then can just move their money wherever they want when they feel like they can't trust that their return won't be inflated away, won't be um, damaged by inflation. I think what matters here is that modern monetary theory says that following from the fact that the monetary sovereign government doesn't need to borrow, investors can never force the government's hand to, to pay higher rates because it doesn't need to borrow. And um, what I think MMT really just is silent on is the private sector rates. So the private sector is not monetary sovereign and the investors can force the private sector hand to buy to, to pay higher rates.
2: I think Farah has got a fair point here that uh, all things equal. You can argue that some uh, governments can finance themselves, because if nothing else, they can finance themselves through uh, the central bank. At the end of the day, a lot of economic activity is generated by the private sector, who, uh, if people get concerned that the government is willing to run risks with inflation, the temptation will be for people to pull their money and move somewhere else. And the people that will pay the price will be the private sector because they will ultimately have to pay higher interest rates to attract capital into the Canada for investment purposes. And modern monetary theory is kind of silent about that because really what's happening is that, if you like, the actions of the government not only affect aggregate demand, they also have a bearing on aggregate supply in terms of how they affect the uh, uh, confidence and willingness of people to invest in uh Canadian in, in the Canadian economy and build Canadian economic productive capacity, and they don't have to invest in Canada. Uh, foreigners do not need to come into this country, and Canadians do not need to stay in this country when it comes to managing their money. They can take their money to wherever they think will offer the best returns. And modern monetary theory, I suspect, needs to give a little bit more thought to these uh, this dynamic and how it plays out in a, uh, a world of uh, free capital mobility virtually free.
0: How big of the financial pie, though, is that cohort of Canadians who can move their money in and out of the country? Is it large enough such that we need to be worried about what printing money does to our exchange rate?
2: Uh, yeah, well, just think of you, you or me or Farah. Um, if you manage money in an RSP or whatever, there's nothing to stop you from investing in uh, in investment funds, for example, that invest outside of Canada. There's nothing to stop you from buying foreign securities outside of Canada. So for the general public, there's nothing really to stop them from moving money into investment vehicles that effectively are a channel to investments abroad. And and extrapolate that to the business sector who when they're making decisions about where to invest, uh, uh, there's nothing really to stop them to decide do they want to uh, build uh, production capacity here in Canada, or do they want to uh, employ people in another country and, and if necessary, uh, import the goods into Canada so, or services? So, um, yes, there are some impediments, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty open world, uh, certainly compared to uh, uh, when I was a child uh, 60 years ago.
0: Should governments concern themselves with inflation? Should they stay in their lane? You know, How much of modern monetary theory do we adopt?
2: One way or another, there have been very clear benefits that we've achieved as a society from having low inflation. It's one of the reasons we have interest rates as low as we have today. date. Uh, it's uh, uh, given a great deal of encouragement to people to feel that they can invest in this country. And our country does depend a great deal on uh, foreign money coming in just have to look at our external balance of payments for that um, we wouldn't necessarily have that uh, the benefit of those flows and investments if uh, we were m- much more lax about inflation you can look at countries like argentina that used to be as prosperous as canada going back from history so uh, there are real benefits from inflation control and History has shown time and again that if you leave it to fiscal policymakers to, be, to take control of inflation, uh, it's going to get lost somewhat in the noise of uh, balancing policy objectives. Whereas at least if it's delegated to a, a central bank and, and who is given an explicit public task to achieve it and the tools to achieve it, uh, at least you know that regardless of whatever the government may be pursuing from a fiscal policy standpoint, there's somebody minding the store on the inflation front
1: you know the question itself again it gets you stuck in this uh, of the in the cycle of should governments concern themselves with inflation and how much of mmt should they apply again that kind of implies that mmt doesn't care about inflation which it does and which it it, it advocates for inflation control and i think it's it's really important to make sure because we've i we've seen from our research how if you were to show any um, indication of not understanding that, it's really then this um, disval- invalidates uh, your argument. So while we think MMT, if the governments were to undertake all of MMT, they would still be doing inflation control. We just don't believe that the method that they prescribe for inflation control works.
0: I, when I step back and I, I listen to this in- entire conversation, Farah, I get the impression that you're exasperated by the public discourse on MMT right now.
1: <laughs> well, it's just so interesting to, to just follow because it's really just these um, economists, very well-respected economists, just writing articles to each other uh, in, in newspaper columns. And it's really interesting to see just the back and forth and discussions, and you really learn a lot from them because we learned a lot about what MMT is and what it's not from what how they responded to certain economists and how they described the theory. Um, I think really also what's, what's interesting about MMT is is not as much the economics of it as much as the, like, the politics of it. And I think that's why it really gets a lot of attention too because uh, it's been made to be very political and your opinion on it has been made to be an indication of whether um, you support certain social priorities. And I really think that's um, just how our society functions nowadays, but the discussion should be focused on the academic and the economic um, considerations in the theory.
0: So I should stop scrolling Twitter.
1: Yeah, that's always a good advice.
0: <laughs> uh, Farah, Mark, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Farah Omran is a former policy analyst at the CD Howe. Mark Zelmer is a senior fellow at the Institute and the former superintendent of financial institutions. Still to come from a physically distant CD Howe. Is it time to change Charitable Foundation's funding requirements? We'll pose that question April 9th in a webinar with John Hallward, President of Sector 3 Insights, Hillary Pearson, the former President of Philanthropic Foundations Canada, and Dan Pedagorski, the Director of Public Policy at the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. April 14th, Meme Stocks and Game Stonks, Navigating the Rise of Retail Investing in Canada's Markets. And on the 16th, the emerging Biden foreign policy, China to the fore. See you then. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe.
1: You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhowe.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn.
0: Thank you.